want to begin our time tonight by considering a phrase that you probably haven't heard for a while. Uh, you've probably not heard this because uh, you've not heard it since high school creative writing class. That phrase is, show me, don't tell me. Show me, don't tell me. It's the high school creative writing teacher's favorite words. Uh, don't tell me the man was upset. Show me. He frantically shuffled through every stack of mail, perched on the mahogany desk, uh, desk muttering incoherently as he raced back and forth from end to end like a goalkeeper at a peewee soccer match. Don't tell me the, the house was beat up. Show me. Uh, the dilapidated old ranch-style home creaked in the wind, crusty sky-blue paint peeling from baseboard to roof. The bulldozer inched closer. Show me. Don't tell me. Uh, think about when your friend tells you about uh, their new haircut, or uh, the new car they got, or the dog. Uh, don't just tell me. Show me. Text me a picture. Uh, shoot me a video. Show me. Show me, don't tell me. That's exactly what James has been saying in James chapter 2. Uh, don't just tell me you have faith. Uh, don't just tell me you're saved. Show me. Show me by your life, by your works, by your deeds that you have real, living, saving faith. Show me. Don't just Tell me. Well, here in the latter part of chapter 2, James is not only saying that, he, in a, a very fitting way, is going to show us what he means in order to prove his point. That true saving faith shows itself in works. You see, so far James has described dead faith, faith that has nothing to show for itself. And tonight, by two examples of true faith, James doesn't just tell us, he shows us what true faith looks like. Uh, turn in your Bibles to James chapter 2. James 2, and we'll be in verses 20 to 26. James 2, beginning in verse 20. Follow as I read. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in that same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. 
Father, when we come to your word, we need your help. Uh, we ask, O oh God, that your spirit would work in our lives in such a way that reveals what sort of a faith it is that each of us has, whether it's, uh, Lord, a dead faith that cannot save, or an authentic, a living, a real faith that shows itself in our lives. And so, Lord, we ask even tonight that you would enliven this true faith in some, that you would save some. As in this text, Lord, we hear the truth of your gospel. We ask your Spirit's help in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week in verses 14 to 19 of this text, we explored uh, that there was a kind of faith that's useless, worthless, dead. It's a faith that claims, that says it believes, but it has no evidence of any sort of authenticity. And here, in verse 20 and on, James continues his argument. And he again addresses his imaginary, maybe not so imaginary, friend, this dissenter, this person who does not understand the integral nature of faith and works. James picks up the conversation, so to speak, in verse 20. And this person that he's been talking to, uh, back and forth by form of rhetorical questions and rhetorical sort of arguments it is a person I think we're all familiar with. Uh, this person goes to church. This person fits right in. They talk the talk. They've dialed in the art of the meetup. They know exactly what to share and how much to share and then what not to share. They know how to gain the approval of everyone around them. But if you dig a little deeper with this person, there is, in this person's mind, in the way that they think, and therefore the way that they believe, there is an accepted difference. There's a dissonance between who they know they're supposed to be on Sunday mornings and then who they are on a Thursday night in Westwood. There's a dissonance for this person between who they say they are in small group and who they are behind closed doors. There is a dissonance, a difference between their words and outward actions in fellowship and what's on their inside, in their heart, toward others. And to this person who sees faith and works as two separate things, unrelated endeavors, James brings this challenge in verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith, apart from works, is useless? You see, this truth that we've been exploring, this fact in the scriptures that the nature of faith is that they're integral. This truth is to James, and now to us, that we've seen it in James 2, is so self-evident, so obvious, that only, James says, a foolish person would need further proof. And so he's asking, he's urging 
Are you willing to be shown? Are you, as the NASB says, willing to recognize or to learn this fact that faith without works is dead? James gets feisty here. He knows by his, his brother Jesus that it's no light thing to call somebody a fool. But he thinks here that it's warranted. You see, his logic has been, what good is it if you say you have faith, but it doesn't show in the way you live? But what good is it if you claim belief, but you don't give a rip about people around you? Well, what good is it if you sign off on the doctrinal statement, but your faith is purely intellectual? What good is it if your profession is a mighty shout or lifted hands, but the whispers of your heart betray Jesus in judgment toward others? This is self-evident and obvious to James and now to us. And he asks, do you really need to be shown? Do you want to be shown? Are you willing to learn, oh foolish person, that can't see this already at this point? And he takes it as a no. I'm, I don't understand, and sure, I'm willing. And he shows us in this passage, uh, he doesn't just tell us. You see, what we've seen so far in this section is that dead faith looks like this. It proclaims, it claims, it says it's saved, but it doesn't show up in someone's life. And I think this autopsy of dead faith has been clarifying. It's been hopefully helpful, but probably discouraging and almost endless and hopeless in sort of how it's viewed. We're here finally, like the welcome sight of land for someone stranded at sea. We tonight get a glimpse of the kind of faith that saves, true faith. The kind of authentic saving faith wrought by an almighty God, given by his grace, bought in full by the blood of his son. And here in this text we see it's the kind of true saving faith that is demonstrated to be true by its works. This kind of true saving faith is demonstrated to be true by its works. I want to look at this passage in three headings. The first is the justification of works. The justification of works. As we look at this passage, there's a phrase or two that jumps out at us. In verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works? Verse 24, similar. You see that a person is justified by works and what? Not by faith alone. This flies in the face of everything Reformed soteriology about us. At least at first glance. It's really two kind of scary verses. 
uh, the kind of verse that you actually stop when you're reading for your devos and you think, what is going on? We need to remember first that James writes here to Jewish believers, believers who are beleaguered by a life of rote adherence to the Mosaic law. And now, in first century Christianity, with this newfound freedom in Christ, they have this freedom that sort of confounds them. It's hard to understand, what do you do when you don't have to follow the law? And so they've swung this pendulum a little bit too far. And as these believers discover, discover life with chains unbound, James must help them understand that to be freed from bondage to the law, and more significantly to be freed from the law of sin and death, is not to sever faith from works. Faith from obedience. It's not to sever them or separate them completely. And James needs to show them that. But that, as James says here, faith is to be active along with works. Your faith, if it is true, James is saying, is demonstrated by works. And so to understand these two verses, it's crucial to understand the significance of the word justified here in these two verses. It's a word familiar to us, and honestly, we assign that word most closely in ownership to the Apostle Paul. In a church context, if you hear the word justify or justification, you immediately think of the Apostle Paul. And rightfully so. We usually understand this word to mean to be made right with God or to be declared righteous in a divine courtroom, forensic kind of sense. It's a declaration, a legal declaration of innocence before a holy God. That's how we understand it. Think of Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or I think of 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Or for ultimate clarity, Galatians 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so over and over, we think of the word justified in a rightfully Pauline context. And I think before we go on, I, I need to echo that truth. That is the truth of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that while you and everybody else on this planet would try to justify themselves, would try to make themselves right before a holy God, none of us could. And it's only by his grace and his mercy and not by works that we have done that he saves us. It's true. There's a reason why, a good reason why, we associate this word justified with the truth of the gospel. Titus puts it this way. He saved us 
not according, or not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And so we understand the word justify usually in these contexts where Paul is giving us an understanding of grace alone, faith alone, salvation. God declares us righteous. He justifies us. Not by works of the law, but by faith. But we need to understand this word justify doesn't always have the same exact connotation throughout the New Testament. I think of it this way. If I told you about the word love, and I said, I love my family, you would say, good, you should. If I said, I love hot cheetos, you would say, really? Like the same way as your family? Or like the same amount? Like how does that work? Is it is love? I love basketball. Specifically, I love the Warriors. Now, each of those instances, I'm using the word love in a different way, yet at its core meaning, the core of its semantics, it has the same sort of core meaning. I really, 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 really like something. Layman's definition. But there are different nuances to how that word is being used. And so the word justified is similar in the New Testament. It can also simply mean to vindicate or to demonstrate, to show that something is righteous. Somebody or something is righteous. To vindicate or to demonstrate or to show that someone or something is righteous. Consider one example. Turn to Luke chapter 7. It's helpful to see this. Um, because you might not see this if you're just reading through a passage like this. Luke chapter 7, Jesus is talking to the crowds about John the Baptist. Luke chapter 7, look at verse 27. Jesus says, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And look at verse 29. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just or righteous, having been baptized with the baptism of John. And verse 29, there's our word, justified. They declared God just. Now, if you think about that sentence, they didn't legally declare God righteous. They had no right to. They're, they're people. It's the crowd. They're simply declaring, in light of what Jesus is saying about John the Baptist, they're saying, we're followers of John the Baptist, and now that you say, Jesus, that he was the one that the prophets prophesied about, God is righteous. God is just because he gave us John the Baptist to follow. And so they're vindicating in their own view the righteousness of God for sending John the Baptist. Now look at verse 30. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, having not, not having been baptized by him, that is John the Baptist. 
To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children, sitting in the marketplace, and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. You, we sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. In these verses from verse 30 on, Jesus' indictment of Pharisees as they see John the Baptist, his ministry, was one style, eating locusts and honey in the wilderness and living an ascetic life. And then Jesus, the opposite, eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors, and he's pointing out the inconsistency of these Pharisees because they would never be pleased with any version of the kingdom of God outside of their authority. And so whether declared as repentance by John the Baptist, here seen as the greatest man that ever lived, or in the coming kingdom proclaimed by Jesus, these Pharisees were like children in the marketplace, whining and judgy and never pleased. And in verse 35, Jesus again uses our word, justified. Yet wisdom is justified or vindicated by all her children. You see, what Jesus is saying is the wisdom of God, both in the John the Baptist era by his preaching and his baptizing for repentance, and in Jesus' era, the wisdom of God throughout is vindicated. It's justified by its results, by what it produces. Followers, people who live in the ways of righteousness. All to say, the important thing to get here in Luke 7 is that we have the same word used twice, justified. And not used in the sense of being made right with God by faith, like Paul uses it, but in verse 29 in the sense that God is being seen as just or righteous. And then in verse 35, in the sense of wisdom being vindicated or being shown or proven to be what it is, righteousness. That's Luke 7, and it helps us to see the importance of this word justified and how it can be used in different ways. And that's the sense of the word justified in James 2. Was not Abraham justified, or you could say vindicated, was he not shown or proven to be righteous by his works when he offered up Isaac on the altar? You could say it this way. Was not Abraham's true and saving faith shown to be true and saving faith when he offered up Isaac? I think of it this way, when you tell your friends that a certain place has the best version of that food, the best wings, you know, like this, I know you're a Buffalo Wild Wings guy when it's late at night, but like this place, this place in Simi Valley, it has the best wings. Like, trust me here, it's, 
It's got the best wings. The sauces are awesome. It's got the right amount of, of bite to it, but it's juicy. They've got the best wings. You don't just make a bold claim like that and leave it there. You've got to bring your friend there. I mean, you literally should drop everything you're doing and hop in the car, drive 35 minutes to Simi Valley, get up on the wrong exit, and then drive streets all the way there just so that they can try those wings. You get to the restaurant, and of course, classic you, you're the last customer of the night. And they have one box of wings left. So they get those wings, and you go right outside because they're a closing shop, and your friend drops the whole box on the ground. I'm just kidding. They take a wing, and they take a bite. It's crispy, because it's the crispy kind. And it's juicy, too. It's got the right amount of bite. And in that moment, the most important moment in all of the last hour, your claim, that place in Simi Valley has the best wings. Your claim? It's justified. It's vindicated. It's shown to be right. And that's what we see here in James 2, very simply. Abraham was. Rahab was. And we are justified by our works. In this sense. We're vindicated. We're shown to have true saving faith. And so let's see faith justified, faith vindicated, faith shown to be true saving faith in two examples. We come to our second heading. Let's call this heading the faith of our Father. The faith of our Father, verses 21 through 24. Back to James 2, look at verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. For James's audience, Abraham was the premier example. He was first in class. He was an A-lister. Here, referred to as Abraham, our father. Uh, the father of not only Israel, but of our faith. Uh, we need to pick up Abraham's story. Turn to Genesis 15. Genesis 15. And we need to see the faith of our father. Back in chapter 12 of Genesis, God called, God chose Abram out of Ur out of a pagan land, and said, you will be my chosen one, 
to carry my people. In chapter 15, God establishes his covenant with Abram. Look at 15, starting in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be heir. So Abram's saying, Okay, God, I get that you're promising me all these things. Thank you. But if in me all the families of the earth are going to be blessed, like you said to me three chapters ago, how is that going to happen if I don't have kids? Just a very simple question, God. Look at God's response, uh, verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. God takes Abram outside and says, Look at the stars. Not only will I give you your own son, your offspring will be as many as the stars that you see. And then look at verse 6. A very important verse. And he, that is Abram, believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. And this is a key verse, not only for our passage in James tonight, it's quoted there. But in general, for your understanding of the grace and initiative of an all-powerful God. It's one of the clearest Old Testament pictures of God's grace. Here in Genesis 15, among other things, God promises to Abram to give him a son, and through that son, offspring as many as the stars. And here it is in verse 6, that Abram believed God. He trusted God. He put his full faith in God for who he was and what he said he would do. And verse 6 tells us, steps outside the story, that faith, that belief, was counted to Abram as righteousness. Righteousness that wasn't Abram's before this scene. Righteousness given to Abram. In the rest of chapter 15, God seals those promises with a covenant. It's what nerdy theologians like to call a unilateral covenant. That is a one-sided handshake, so to speak. Deal. It's unilateral. One person's making the deal. God's initiative and God's promise, and in chapter 15, if we looked at it, we would see it's God's guarantee as well. So here in chapter 15, we see Abram's initial point of faith, his acknowledgement of the character and the promises of God. 
It's his positive response of belief toward God. It's the very beginning of the faith of our Father. Hebrews 11, verse 1, describes faith this way. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. That is what Abram had. Turn to chapter 22 now, and we need to look a little bit more at Abram's faith, the faith of our father. Genesis 22, Abram is now Abraham. And here in Genesis 22, we finally come to the event referred to in James 2. It's God's test of Abraham's faith. Look at verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Here we see Abraham acting in faith. He had it believed God for his promises in chapter 15, verse 6 we saw, and here he is acting on that faith. You see, the same God who had promised Abraham offspring as numerous as the stars was asking Abraham to sacrifice 
his one and only son. Abraham could not see how God's promise and this part of his plan would reconcile. But he knew greater than any doubt he had was the wisdom and the power and the faithfulness of the God asking him to step out in faith. And so here we see, as James says, that Abraham's faith, Abraham's very much alive and authentic faith in God was vindicated. Abraham was justified by his works. His faith was shown to be true. Consider what Hebrews 11 says of Abraham's faith in this instance. It says there, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to raise him from the dead from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You see, Abraham, in faith, by faith, trusted God so fully and completely for his promises and his power that he knew if he were to sacrifice Isaac in obedience to God, the very God who had promised and supplied his son Isaac, that there some way would be some way forward. That God would resurrect Isaac back from the dead. Or that God would provide another son. Or that God would provide another sacrifice. Abraham's faith showed true. And it stood the test. Abraham's tenacious faith here, tested and proven true, is such an example to all of us back against the wall. Do you trust your own emotions and feelings and instincts about what you think is right? Your own intuition or your own maybe attachment to the things that even God has given you as a gift? Or are you willing to, in faith, obey Him no matter what? No matter what it means that you have to give up. No matter how it feels. Are you willing to demonstrate your faith in the hardest of situations? In the toughest of trials? In those moments, your faith will be justified vindicated, demonstrated, or proven to be the kind of faith uh, that James says is useless, worthless. I believe as we look into just a snippet of Abraham's life tonight, it's an incredible example for us of what faith in God looks like, what total uh, reliance on God is like uh, the kind of true living faith that we all want to have. 
Turn back to James 2, and let's connect the dots here. Verse 21 again, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. You see, Abraham's faith was vindicated when he, in faith, was willing to offer his son Isaac on the altar. He brought the, the knife and the, and the fire, and he strapped his son to the altar in obedience to God. This wasn't blind trust with no understanding of the consequences. This was Abraham in full-orbed faith, knowing full well that the God who had promised was the God who had commanded him to do this and would also be the God who would somehow still fulfill his promise that by his very own son he would have offspring as many as the stars. And in this, faith, James is saying, was active alongside his works. And in that trial, Abraham's faith grew in great measure. He was pushed and grown in his trust. Then his faith was brought to a fuller, what James says is completion, a greater maturity, that word means. And James points out here in verse 23 that Genesis 15, 6 statement of Abraham's faith was fulfilled. You see, what was true in saving faith in its infancy, as God called Abram out of Ur, and gave him good and precious promises. All of that was fulfilled by Abraham's unswervingly confident faith in God. Seven chapters later, 25 years later, in Genesis 22. Everything in Genesis 22, in Abraham's obedience, fulfilled Genesis 15:6. That Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Well, that faith, that full belief in God was vindicated in Genesis 22. Abraham, father of our faith, by his obedience, vindicated as one who was righteous before God. And so, James says, Abraham was called a friend of God. A friend of God. What a title. He was, in light of his proven faith, not at enmity with God, but a friend. This is the assessment that Jesus gives, not only of Abraham, but of all who obey. John 15, 14, Jesus says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. This is the living and after faith of Abraham, father of our faith friend of God, a true and living faith. And that's how we can understand verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. It's what James has been saying all along in chapter 2. Not just by whether you claim to have faith, not just by merely just saying that you believe in Jesus, but that claim, that profession is Justified. It's vindicated by that person's love and submission to Jesus being shown indeed in their lives from that point on. 
Martin Luther. The man who had so much contempt for this passage. We talked about this in the introduction to James, but he calls James the epistle of straw, a reference to 1 Corinthians 3. It's part of what should be burned up in eternity. He said the book of James is an epistle of straw. And he said that because he couldn't figure out what James 2.24 was saying. Well, Martin Luther, he said this of faith. He said, oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. And so it is impossible for it not to do good works incessantly. It does not ask whether there are good works to do, but before the question arises, it has already done them and is always at the doing of them. He who does not these works is a faithless man. That's a Martin Luther that I think understands James 2.24. One of my favorites, Sinclair Ferguson, says it this way. The person who is counted as righteous through faith will do what is righteous. John Calvin, faith alone justifies. But the faith that justifies is never alone. Jesus in Matthew 7 and, and Matthew 12 as well gives a word picture. He describes trees, fruit trees, uh, trees that are healthy, that bear good fruit, and then trees that are unhealthy or dead, that bear bad fruit or don't bear fruit at all. And we most often think of Matthew 7, but Matthew 12, I think, gives a good picture of this justifying nature of our works. And in this passage, our words. Jesus is confronting the Pharisees for their dead faith as they give false testimony about him. And he says this, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Now listen to this. For by your words you will be justified. And by your words you will be condemned. It's that very same truth that James is pointing out. By our works, or by our words, by the very way we live our lives day by day, we will demonstrate the kind of faith that was in our hearts all along. Either true and living faith, or dead and useless faith. So that's Abraham, father of our faith. Exhibit A of genuine living faith. James now, in verse 25, turns to a second example of this kind of real faith. Let's call this the faith of a sinner. The faith of a sinner. Here James turns to a rather intriguing example, because next to Abraham, the very father of our faith, 
to James' audience, he's perhaps the most admirable figure in all of Jewish history. James places Rahab. Abraham, a patriarch. Rahab, a prostitute. Abraham, moral. Rahab, immoral. Abraham, the first Jew. Rahab, a Gentile woman. Abraham, wealthy. And Rahab, scraping by by an evil profession. And yet in verse 25, James says this. And I think these are powerful words beyond their individual meaning. And in the same way. And in the same way. I don't know why you are here tonight. You are here tonight because you're actually interested in Christianity. You want to know who Jesus is. Uh, Maybe you're here tonight because someone dragged you here. Or maybe you're here on a divine appointment. You're here for some other reason. uh, But we're glad to have you here. Whether the godliest of people in this room or the, the most heinous sinner that cannot stop sinning, if and when God saves you by His grace and by His grace alone, it will be in the same way. It will be in the same way. All of us, sinners saved by grace, will be saved in the same way. And on this side of the cross, we know that way is the truth and the life. Jesus. But in James, James says, in the same way, Rahab demonstrated real faith. The faith that was active alongside its works. Now, to fast forward the story, Rahab lived in Jericho, and given her profession, uh, her job, she would have interacted with a lot of traveling merchants. From there, she probably would have heard about a nation called Israel. This nation with the power of a real God. This nation taking the land by storm, coming from Egypt via miracle and victory. Victory and miracle by pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. She had heard that this nation, in in an era of polytheism, believed that there was only one God, Yahweh. I am who I am. The God who had promised these people, Israel, that they would be a great nation, a nation that would inherit the land of Canaan, which included her own city, Jericho. And in her heart, God cultivated fertile soil, ready for faith whether through her own guilt over her wretched lifestyle or a disillusionment with her place in society, God revealed to her admittedly what little there was that she would have known about him. And yet the scriptures tell us and show us it was enough for true and living faith. And so when those spies from Israel came, not for business, but for Yahweh's business, She hid them under the flax and told her lie to the king's men. 
And in her interactions with the spies, she says this in Joshua 2, I know that Yahweh has given you this land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh your God, he is God in the heavens, above and on the earth, beneath. Like Abraham of old, that simple confession of faith, active along with her works, in hiding the spies and aiding the spies, justified her faith, vindicated her faith. You know how the rest of the story goes, how the spies made it out safely by the rope to the window, and how Rahab used a, star a scarlet cord to save her a whole household. But consider James's point here. The faith of a sinner, a Gentile woman, undeserving, she responded, in faith, certainly in simple and imperfect form, but in the same way as Abraham, the father of our faith. It's a faith that took what little revelation about God that was available to her and believed it and acted upon it. True living faith that didn't stop at mere knowledge or even simple confession, but that followed through a faith that flowed forth in action out of a response to God. We've gone there already a couple times. Consider what Hebrews 11 says of Rahab. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. It's simple, but it's there. By faith, Rahab did these things. The faith of a sinner cultivated in the dark corners of a pagan nation and yet enlivened by God to respond in bold faith just at the right time. A faith that would blossom not only into the conquest of Israel over Canaan, but such that Matthew tells us Rahab was part of the lineage of Jesus. And so both Abraham and Rahab in the same way, portraits of true and living faith. A faith that is the very opposite of what James finishes with in, in verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. You see, James finishes with one final illustration, one final Show me, don't tell me. He says, faith without works is like a body. It's like a corpse with no spirit in it, no breath of life in it, no signs of life. It's useless, worthless, dead. It's a faith that cannot save. But sandwiched in this passage, here in this text, we've seen two portraits of true and living faith, a faith that does save, 
a faith that responds to God and the revelation of God, whether in the form of direct promises straight out of heaven or in the fear and trepidation that says simply, if Yahweh is doing that to the nations, he must be Lord. Faith that responds then in action to God. Hebrews 11 shows us more portraits, a long line of imperfect yet faith-filled people who lived with this assurance of things hoped for, who lived with this conviction of things not seen. And notice how many verbs there are, how many actions there are, uh, how many works, deeds there are in this. That faith is always sprung into action. These men and women, through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the, mouth, the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection, some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered, mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Abraham responded in faith to God and his promises. Rahab responded in faith to rumors of God and his power. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. That we have not just promises out of the sky or rumors of how God is conquering nations, but we have the full and final revelation of God in his word and in his Son. And if you have true and living faith, you must respond in kind. You see, faith in the living God, faith in the resurrected Son of God, faith in which you have the Spirit of God living within you, the very faith by which God brought you forth into new life, must be justified by the way that you live. Romans 12 pictures this all-encompassing, all-of-life response that we ought to have. That's not dead, but living. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. GOC, don't just tell me, show me with your life that your faith is true and living. 